Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Ed Griffinagan. I'm one of the pastors on the staff here at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that y'all are here. I think God has got you here for a reason. He got you up this morning, got you here. If you're, <clears throat> if you're watching uh, on YouTube or on Facebook, um, he's got you plugged in with us uh, with an intent and for a reason. And so uh, before we kind of get started with the message today, <clears throat> I want to we're kind of in a time in our worship service where we're going to receive an offering. And I want you all to kind of know, and I talked about this last week, I want to give us, I want us to just kind of be talking about where, you know, the generosity of the folks that call Church on the Trail home, like how does that play itself out out, in the, out on the outside of the building, sometimes obviously on the inside of the building. But last week we talked about a ministry that we started in April, I think, of 2018 called Generations, which is a foster care prevention ministry where we get referrals from the Department of Family and Child Services for kids who are in jeopardy of being snatched out of the home and put in the system. <clears throat> and the cases that we get, and there's a lot, but the cases that we get are not where there's drugs or violence in the home. It's all poverty-driven cases. It's cases where you got a kid sleeping on the floor can't have kids sleeping on the floor and we'll we'll figure it out we'll provide a bed we deliver that bed when every time we talk to the to the family we're praying with them when we deliver the bed we're praying with them we deliver when we deliver the bed we're delivering bibles as well and so there's a relational component of that also and so last week we talked about that a little bit and I said that's one of the places where the generosity in this church uh, in our church family, that's kind of one of the places where it goes. And just so you know, and I said this also last week, I think it was 125 children last year in Muskogee County that that through that ministry are not in, in the system. Those families were preserved. And I talked to the judge, uh, uh, his name's Andy, the uh, DFAX judge in Columbus Thursday night, because I just wanted to ask him what kind of an impact that has had on the system. And he said in the last two years, he said, you have no idea how big of an impact that that ministry has had on the system in Muskogee County because you don't have the clutter that you had. <clears throat> you have available beds, and by that I mean you have available foster families that have places available for a kid who is taken out of a home because of drugs or because of violence, that that bed is not being taken up by somebody, that slot, so to speak, is not being taken up by somebody who, who their issue could have been uh, taken care of with us providing a kitchen table or for us providing a literally a bed for them to sleep on. Major, major impact that it has had. And so in that conversation Thursday night, we came to realize, because in, he kind of told me, he said, because of that ministry, there's become, there is a, a renewed focus on preserving families where it's possible to keep them together. Y'all, it's not good for a kid to be snatched out of a family when all it takes is 150 bucks or something. It's not good because the odds go into the tank that that kid's going to have. And it doesn't, I'm not saying that, that foster families, that there's a big problem. But when that kid is taken out of the family with his mama and his daddy and put into a family that he doesn't know, the odds just go down, right? And so that's that ministry. And it's an amazing ministry. And, you know, the truth is we're about to, to buy about 65 beds. You know, it takes resources for that, right? It takes resources. So I just want you to know 
where that uh, where you're one of the places where your generosity is going. Um, whoever was clapping, you can clap. That's okay, because because it's a cool ministry. It's a very cool ministry. So on the screen is just mechanically the places that you can give to Church on the Trail. You can Venmo. Um, you know, you can go churchonthetrail.org/give. You, if you're here and you want to do something physically, there's offering. There's those little black boxes on the walls. Um, did I forget something? You can text to give. Any of those ways. Let me pray for the offering, then we'll jump into, into what the Lord's got for us today. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be out in a lost and dying world and be in your hands and your feet. And Lord, we thank you for the generosity of the folks that call this home that they, we, provide um, some of the resources for that. Lord, let us just keep our, our, our minds focused on the task at hand. You know, we don't know when you're coming back. Lord, I hope it's tomorrow. But we, we don't know when you're coming back, but you tell us in your word what our job is in the meantime. And so, Lord, the, the resources that your kids provide, let us just use wisdom and use discernment and responsibly handle those resources. And we know that you will bless that. And we know that ultimately you will use it for your glory, that ultimately you would use it or you will use it to bring people closer to you, to draw people closer to you, to bring lost sinners into a saving relationship with you. And so, Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all, so we are uh, we're in Romans Last week we were in Romans 10. We've been in Romans for several months. We're walking through the, through the whole letter. But last week we were in Romans chapter 10, and uh, we landed on a claim. We ended on a claim in verse 13 that, uh, that Paul makes, and that claim is this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a, a declaration. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and that it's not about the law, that it's about faith. It's not about the law, it's about trust and belief and faith and grace. And so the Bible proclaims here in, in Romans 10 that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek or, or, or Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or, or black or white or green or purple or, quote, good or, quote, bad. Bend the knee, repent, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says in chapter 10. Today we're going to be in chapter 11. And I want you to remember that chapters 9, 10, 11 in Romans are very much about Israel. Very in context, very much about Israel. So that's a little bit of a backdrop today. But we're going to be in chapter 11, particularly about the first 9 or 10 verses. To some degree today we're going to talk about election. Some of y'all that word means something, some of you it doesn't mean anything. But we're going to talk to some degree about election. And there are words in Scripture that Paul uses, not just Paul, but there's words that are election kind of words, foreknowledge, to foreknow, foreknew, you know, election, predestination. Those are all election kind of words. And so we're going to be, we're going to talk about that to some degree. And it's God's choosing. At the end of the day, that's what we're talking about is God's choosing. And that may make you cringe a little bit. I don't know. But does God do some choosing? Scripture says he does. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Now, that subject has very much divided believers for 1,500, 1,800 years probably. 
And what we're really talking about is Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, that's not what this message is about, but that's this debate. And you may, that name John Calvin may mean something to you, it may not. Jacob Arminius may mean something to you, it may not. There are men who wrote about this issue, both of them, on different ends, way different ends kind of of that spectrum. Neither side is heretical. Jacob Arminius, not heretical, for sure. John Calvin, definitely not heretical. But what I believe can get heretical is the ridiculous weight that both sides place on that issue. Because the ridiculous weight that gets placed on that issue, it somehow gets in front of the gospel. Y'all don't let it get in front of the gospel. Don't let stuff like that, like that get in front of the gospel. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And so we're talking about Calvinism, Arminianism. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I'm a Jesus freak. Period. Like, like period. Sometimes I lean a little bit this way and sometimes I lean a little bit bit this way, but my commitment to y'all is to rightly divide the truth, to rightly preach to the best of my ability what the Scripture says and not to move Calvin or Jacob Arminius in front of this. This is on the front of the stage. This is God's Word. And y'all, when we elevate man's opinion, and I'm talking about even godly, intelligent men and women, but when we elevate somebody's opinion, a human being's opinion, above things, when we elevate their opinion, it, what happens is it's so easy to begin to believe that people, even godly, intelligent people, that they bring nothing to the table of the discussion. Like, that's not right. Because if we disagree with them, we tend to say, you bring nothing to the, to the conversation. That ain't right. The reality for me personally is I've learned more from the people that I don't agree with than the people that I do agree with. And so don't go down that road. And that's a road, and it's a dangerous road, but that's a road that, and I hate to even use this word, Calvinists and Armenians tend to go down that road, and they tend to to accuse each other of stuff. And I would say this. If John Calvin was standing here, and if Jacob Arminius was standing here, they would throw up at the fact that people call themselves Calvinists or Arminians and not Christians. It would make them sick. So we will not move man's thoughts in front of God's thoughts. It's just not going to happen. So, And you've got in your worship guide a little two-page thing, and I've just kind of given you what what my thoughts are here um, about that issue. And so I, I I love to talk about it. So if you want to talk about it, give me a call, email me, come see me, whatever, because I do love to talk about it. But I will not move it in front of Scripture. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. And you've got to know, man, that there's, there's a lot of stuff that is crystal clear and presented with absolute clarity in Scripture. What's the purpose of Scripture? It is to lead a lost sinner into a saving relationship with the Lord. That's the purpose of the Scripture. That is crystal clear in the Bible. I mean, you've got to run away from it. It's clear. There's a lot of other stuff, though, that may not be real clear. And so I think there's a tension that can be there because you and I want everything to be perfectly clear. We want every T crossed and every I dotted and every box checked. Y'all, it just don't work that way. And God wrote the text of this scripture the way he wanted to write it. And if it's not clear, well, guess what? 
he didn't intend for it to be clear. And maybe he didn't intend for it to be clear so we could focus on the cross and not on the stuff that's outside of the cross that people fuss and argue and split churches and have been doing that for 2,000 years. It's insane. It's insane. So, and I said I wasn't going to talk about that much and I probably spent 10 minutes doing that. But Romans chapter 11, election is in there and so we're going to talk about it. I lay this kind of as a backdrop as well to uh, Romans 11. And that is this idea, this understanding, and I think we have to establish this, that the heart and the soul of Romans 11 is that the Bible is black and white, crystal clear, that God can be trusted, that he is absolutely faithful, that he keeps his word, that he is a promise keeper, that he is a way maker, that he is a miracle worker. Romans 11 makes the fact that you can trust him super clear and that you've always, we've always been able to trust him. Look at Joshua chapter uh, 23, should be on the screen. And Joshua says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And what he's saying is I'm about to kick it. I'm about to head west. I'm about to die is what he's saying. And you know, he's talking to Israel. He says, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord promised. All have come to pass for you. Y'all, time after time after time in the Old Testament, God made promises. And he will always be faithful. He's always faithful. Just know that the entirety of this book, the entirety of your Bible Tell page one to the end of the revelation, it tells us that he is a promise keeper. And then there are some very specific promises that are made at very specific times uh, to a very specific people known as Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are very much in context focused on Israel. And you can go back in the Old Testament and you can see promise after promise after promise uh, where we're for instance, God makes a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. He makes this promise, this deal with Abraham where he promises to bless the world through Abraham and his lineage and his family tree. And then, and then and he's going to bless the world. He's going to bless the nations, everybody, through Abraham and his descendants. And then we come up to King David and he makes this promise. He makes this deal, this covenant with King David. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's funny how they're... Abraham and Abrahamic and David and Davidic. But uh, this, this promise, this deal that he makes with David is that he promises to give Israel a king through David's line and he'll be the greatest king that ever walked the planet, the Messiah. It's promised through King David's line. And then there's what is known in Deuteronomy chapter 30 as the Palestinian covenant. And that is that his people, the Lord, his people Israel will ultimately possessed the land that came to fruition y'all in 1948 Israel possessed the land and then there's this covenant that he makes with Moses and Moses um, is the dude that the Lord used to 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 liberate Israel out of the the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain he's hanging up hanging out with God on the mountain and the Lord makes this deal this covenant with Moses and it's a promise of blessing on those people and their obedience to that and then in Jeremiah 31, man, what a chapter. Jeremiah 31, 
the Lord promises that he will institute a new covenant where he will write the law on our hearts that will be inside of us. And y'all, all of these promises that the Lord makes, all these promises that are given by God have got to be fulfilled in the Jewish people. And the fact, now think about this, the fact that through Israel, millions and millions of Gentiles have been blessed does not cancel out the promises that are made to Israel. Let me say that again. The fact that, that through Israel, through Abraham, through David, through all of them, through Israel, that millions of Gentiles, millions, have been blessed, that does not cancel out the promises that are made to Israel. So there's this long introduction to Romans chapter 11. And so Paul begins it by saying this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Well, then what? You know, you got to go back to the end of chapter 10 and just know this, and I know I say this often, the chapters and verses are man-made. Paul didn't write letters with chapters and verses. So when he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, he's talking about, he's referring back to what he just said, and what he just said was this. All day, and this is him uh, saying what the Lord said. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Well, that's, Paul's asking a really, it's a super legit question. Has God finally had enough? Like, is he just plain, is he just plain tired of them? Is he like, I'm done, I'm washing my hands of these stiff-necked Jews, I'm done with them? Is that what, is, the, is that the deal? Because the nation, the, Israel, I say, the nation as a whole, they didn't trust or obey him the way they should, and they rejected in mass in mass sort of corporately rejected his son when he's walking right among them. So it sounds like a legit question. Has God finally rejected his people? And that word reject that's used there by Paul, it is to, to cast away, some of your translations may say, or to, um, to the Ed translation would say tosses them to the curb. Is that what happened? Has God utterly cast away the Jews? And Paul answers, by no means, like absolutely not, no way, let it never be. Are you crazy is what Paul says, by no means. Because you see, Paul has got to defend the fact that God has not canceled out the promises that he made to Israel. Because think about it, how, would, how are you going to get any Gentile to accept the gospel from a God who reneges on his promises? How are you going to get any Jew to accept a, a, a God who reneges on the promise made to great-great-granddaddy. Like, how are you going to get anybody uh, who, to want to belong to a God who you can't trust? So Paul says, absolutely not. He has not rejected his people. He has not broken and violated his word to Israel. And I believe in these, these verses, these first 9, 10, 11 verses, <clears throat> that Paul gives us, and he may give us more than this, but I, I, I think he gives us at least five proofs that God has not tossed every Jew to the curb. Because remember, in the context this is written, it's about Israel. And the reality is, it's one of the reasons why you will seldom see preachers today preach Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because they think it has nothing, nothing to say to the church because it's about Israel. Well, y'all tell me when we're done today if you think Romans chapter 11 has anything to say to the church. And so I think he gives us five proofs 
of why God has not put them to the curb. Look at the rest of verse 1. For I myself, Paul talking about himself, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul himself, as part of the remnant, is proof number one. Paul's proof number one. Because what is he saying? He's saying, if the Jews had been cast aside, then I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be part of the club. I wouldn't be on the team. I wouldn't have entered into this covenant blessing with the Lord. I wouldn't be saved. At the end of it all, he's saying, if we were booted off to the curb, I wouldn't be saved, right? And y'all, Paul is radical, like crazy radical proof. Jacked up, messed up past, this dude named Paul has. Messed up past. But don't, don't you know that when you meet Christ, he changes like everything? Like everything. He changes the way you look at everything. So Paul is this poster child for this. Because here's what you would think. And I'm telling you what you would think. Here's what I would think. If I'm a fly on the wall looking at this guy, Paul, I would think this dude is a Jesus-hating, Jesus-rejecting, Christian-hating, Christian-killing Jew that ought not ever be allowed on the team. That's the way in my flesh that I'd be looking at him. But he says in, he says in Scripture, but I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a descendant of Abraham. And Paul is just crazily enough like the chief spokesman for Christianity, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He's the last guy you would ever think that the Lord would use. And so what that tells me is that you could be a Jesus-hating, Jesus-denying, Christian-killing, Christian-hating Jew or Buddhist or Muslim, but you meet the risen Christ and you can be saved. I don't care who you are. You can, because he changes everything, y'all, you cannot gaze upon the face of the Lord and be the same. And Paul is the poster child for that. What y'all think about that? Okay, thank you. So Paul, in, the, in this context, Paul himself, as, as a Jewish Christ-following, born-again, saved child of the one true king, he's proof number one because he wouldn't be standing there. All right, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Ooh, here we got this first election kind of word. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So proof number two is this, that God's foreknowledge guarantees a remnant. Okay, Paul's part of the remnant. We're going to talk about remnants today. Big time talk about remnants today. Does God preserve a remnant? So proof number two is God's foreknowledge guarantees it. God himself guarantees a remnant. He saves the folks he foreknows. God's foreknowledge of his people, it implies a very special relationship with them. It does. It's inherent in the word. A very special relationship with them. He chose Israel. You cannot get away from it, y'all. He chose Israel to be the people through whom all the other nations of the world would come to know him. That's, he chose them. He made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He chose them. Israel brought nothing to the table to cause God to choose them. He chose them because 
like a drum roll. Because he wanted to. Y'all, he chose him because he wanted to. Because he's God, he gets to do what he wants. Y'all, he don't have to explain to Ed Griffinhagen why he chose Israel, right? He chose them because he's God, and, he, and that's what he wanted to do. He didn't choose them because they somehow um, deserved some special treatment. No, he chose them because he's God. We think that that word, again, I'm telling you what you think. I, for a long time, kind of thought this word forno, which is progenosco in, the, in Greek, I thought that word just really simply meant to know something before it happened. But it's way, there's way, way, way. That may be... Um, a nuance of the word, but there's way more to that word. It is a determinative word. It is a guaranteeing word. It's God determining, in this context, it's God determining to set his love on Israel. It's a predetermined love relationship. So God has not pushed away or rejected or cast away or thrown away his own called people whom he predetermined to love. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is written 1,400, 1,500 years before Paul wrote Romans. Verse 6 in chapter 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number, I'm going to stick something in there. I'm not adding to the scriptures, so don't start throwing tomatoes at me. But he's saying principle-wise, it's not because you were more in number. It's not because you were better looking. It's not because you did this or this or this to cause me to choose you. It's not because you were taller or shorter or whatever. He says it's not because you were more in number than any other people uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He says, for in fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. But verse 8 says, but it is because the Lord loves you. You and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. He's a promise keeper, y'all. He is not a liar. He's a promise keeper. So this it equates um, it equates his choosing with his setting his love on them. So foreknowing, foreknowledge, if we made it a verb, foreknowing is setting love on someone as an act of the sovereign choice on the part of God. That's what foreknowing really means. It's not just knowing some set, some thing's going to happen out here in the future. So if God determined before the foundation of the world to set his love on a super obstinate people, Israel, if he did that, it would just be outside of his nature to change his mind. He didn't love them to ultimately then damn them. He didn't call them and elect them and choose them and draw them to himself so that he could ultimately renege on all the promises that he made. Y'all, Israel is the only nation that Scripture says God foreknew. Amos in chapter 4 says, Israel only have I known. So the proof is the remnant. The proof is that there is a remnant. Y'all, every generation, look back in history, bleak times, wonderful times, prosperous times, poor times, look back in all of history and there is always a remnant, a thread of believers moving through history. Look at the rest of verse 2, 3, and 4. So God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? 
and Paul's talking about 1 Kings chapter 19. And so he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And he's quoting him, quoting Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And, and I'm like the only one that's left. And now they're seeking my life. And then Paul asks a question. But what is God's reply to him? What is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself. Elijah's saying I'm alone. God says I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal is a pagan god represented uh, by idols. And so God says, I kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed that knee to Baal. So proof number three is that Elijah foresaw a remnant. It's proof from the very word of God, y'all. From the beginning, Scripture clearly says that not all of Israel is going to be saved, but only a remnant of believers, a remnant of people who follow the Lord and obey the Lord and trust the Lord and believe in the Lord. And Elijah's experience is a perfect example of just that. Elijah lived during a nasty time in Israel's history, nasty time of, of sin and disloyalty and, and heresy. And he himself is marked for death because he refused to stop his preaching on the righteousness of God. And I believe in a moment of probably doubt or uncertainty or he's in a pit of despair. He's in a, probably he's in a pit of despair, Elijah. And he cries out to God in prayer, am I like the only one that's left? You ever feel that way? Like if, is, if, am I the only one that is going through whatever it is you're going through? Raise your hand if you've ever felt that way. Everybody in this room better be raising their hand. And that's Elijah in this moment. Am I the only godly human left in the nation? And God says, no, bruh, I got 7,000 of you people scattered around the nation. And so the point is this, in Elijah's day, the vast majority of people are just like they are today, disobedient and disloyal to God, rejecting and denying the Lord, rejecting and denying his word, putting themselves on the throne of their life, spewing hatred, looting, pillaging, burning, and chasing after some self-created Baal, some self-created idol. And it may not be a little stupid little statue that you're bending over to, but it may be money, it may be your job, it may even be your children. But something has got in between you and the Lord. And so the world is just like it was in Elijah's day. But there was a remnant. Y'all, a few who were loyal and faithful and trusting in God. In this case, there were 7,000. Nonetheless, that's a remnant. They hadn't turned to worshiping idols. They were trusting him to fulfill his promises. And I think there's like two, I'm going to say, shocking facts. I mean, they're kind of, they blow me away. Number one is this. And it's a fact that so many people deny him. So many people reject him and deny him. And I don't even understand it, y'all. How can two people look at the exact same evidence and come away with polar opposite conclusions? How can two people look at the birth of a child and one say how beautifully and wonderfully did God breathe life into you and the other person say, oh, look what came from the pile of mud. Like, I don't even understand that. How can people, how, how can people 
see all of the evidence of creation and, and just see the love between a husband and a wife and just, and every, and just deny and reject the Lord. I don't, like, I don't understand it. I really don't. But the scripture says and our evidence, our, our experience is that, that most of the world unfortunately rejects and denies him. That's number one shocking fact kind of to me. And number two is this. And it's a little shocking until you really dig in and study the scripture that God always, always, always has a few. He always has this promised remnant that he's dealing with. He's always dealing with a remnant of believers. Even do a word study on that word in the Old Testament. In the prophets, it's used 60 or 70 times. There's a principle of the remnant. God is preserving a people for himself. And so I want to encourage you today, all of us individually even, that you're not alone. You're not alone. Even when you feel alone, you're not alone. The prophets in Israel, despite often the harshness of their words, consistently over and over and over reveal the fact that God has always been committed to a remnant. Always. As Christ followers today, as Christians today, we are all part of the remnant that he wants to use to impact the world for himself. Not we're part of the remnant so we can stay home all by ourselves and do nothing. That's not what he would have for us to do. We're part of the remnant. We're part of the descendants of Abraham, y'all. Whether you're grafted in or whether you're by blood. He promises to bless the nations through the descendants of Abraham. That's y'all if you're a Christ follower. And that's me. So we're wired up and we're instructed and we're, we're commanded to, to be his hands and feet in a, in, a, in, a, in a lost and dying world. And so listen to how this is just displayed in the prophets, this idea of remnant. Just two or three. In Isaiah, Isaiah names his son Shear Jashub, and that means uh, a remnant will return. Uh, Jeremiah wrote of God saying, I will gather the remnant of my flock. I will gather the remnant of my flock. And Micah records God saying, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. Remnant, 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 over and over and over and over in the Old Testament. And let me give you another thought here, and this is a huge thought, I think. All of us need to recognize that the image of a nation, this is cold, brutal truth, the image of a nation is determined by the lifestyle of the majority. The image of a nation is determined by the lifestyle of the majority. In Elijah's day, absolutely fact, the wickedness of the majority in Israel, and they were mostly wicked in that day. The wickedness of the majority in Israel overshadowed the godliness of the few. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? God deals in remnants. And Elijah, even the great prophet of God that Elijah was, and he was so stuck in his pit that he didn't realize there's 7,000 folks out there that are with him. But they were. Here's a major principle. God will never leave himself without a witness. He won't. Ever. Ever. He will never leave himself without a witness. Nor will he ever leave his people without fellow workers to be there with him. He won't do it. It's outside of who he is. Now, we may not always know each other, but we're there. We can rest assured that there are witnesses scattered around, witnesses who are bearing testimony 
for Christ. God has this faithful few. He always has and he always will. And so proof three is that Elijah foresaw that in 1 Kings. Verse 5 and verse 5 and 6 are super related. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So proof four is that there is a remnant at this present time. And so this is a strong claim. There is a remnant. It's for sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a declaration. There is no doubt that there is a remnant that Paul says at that time. Now, if there was a remnant in Elijah's time, and there's a remnant in the day of Paul in the first century when he writes, you can take it to the bank that there's a remnant in 2021. You can take it to the bank that throughout history there's a thread of a remnant. Why is that? Because of grace, y'all. The text says because of grace. The grace of God in Jesus Christ has now come, Paul says. And the Spirit of God is actively at work making that grace known. This is the Trinity. Like this is a perfect image of the Trinity hard at work. The grace of the Father in, his, in the Son with the Holy Spirit bringing folks to him. And so just like God... Um, preserved a remnant of his people when nearly all of Israel had, had, had almost all of them had turned to idolatry God is restoring a remnant through his son only because of his sovereign choice and by his grace now these Jewish believers that Elijah is talking about in this faithful kind of remnant are proof that God has not rejected his people I believe this, I believe what Paul said in the first century with super confidence, we can repeat today. No matter how grim, no matter how, um, how much in despair things look, no matter how bad and how bleak things may look out on the horizon, no matter what, because of his sovereignty, we can say with confidence that in our present time, there's still a remnant that is chosen, y'all, by grace. By grace and the last proof that God hadn't just washed his hands of his people because remember in context this is about Israel and so this last proof that he hadn't washed his hands of the Jews verse 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10 particularly verse 6 and it's very much related to verse 5 and it says but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace well what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So proof number five is that God's grace assures us of a remnant. Verse six is kind of, a, kind of an explanation of verse five on being chosen by grace on being elected the King James says elected by grace so verse 5 clearly y'all demonstrates God's motivation for electing or to choosing is grace and then verse 6 explains it a little bit if it's grace it's not works it's grace because grace ain't grace if there's any works or any dues involved in God's motivation if you could somehow earn it if you could somehow do something, then it ain't grace. Salvation is by grace alone. The remnant is chosen by grace 
alone, y'all. And throughout what Paul, Paul's writings, particularly Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6, he's been saying grace, 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 salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. And, 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 and Paul, who's a member of this remnant, he gives his own testimony throughout his writings, particularly um, in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy, who's this spiritual son of Paul's. And he's a young pastor. And Paul's just pouring his life into Timothy. And he says in chapter 1, in verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. His purpose, God's purpose, not Ed's purpose, not Susan's purpose, not Lonnie's purpose, his purpose. We don't get to tell him what his purpose is, right? It's he's sovereign and he called us and chose us for his purpose. Has nothing to do with performance, my performance or your performance. Performance ain't got nothing to do with it. Paul is saying that. God has chosen this remnant in every era throughout history. Now, I told you all I was going to give you five proofs that God hasn't tossed the Jews to the curb, I want to get, that he deals in remnants. I want to give you one more, and I'm, and I'm going to say this is my own sixth proof, that he deals in remnants. I'm standing here. Like, it's insane to me. It's weird. I feel like crazy, unworthy, humbled, odd, honored, privileged, I don't know, to be part of the remnant that Paul is talking about in context in Romans chapter 11. Y'all, is the truth is I was born a Jew, raised in the synagogue, a descendant of Abraham, actually descended of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day of my life, and 36 years later, bought by, redeemed by, reconciled by, restored by the precious blood of Christ spilled all over this old rugged cross outside the city gates in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That is nuts. Like, that is nuts. Like, truthfully, why in the world would he save me? That's all I can think about. Like, why? So for me, this is the strongest proof that I'm standing in front of y'all. There is there's absolutely no explanation whatsoever that I am a, a Christ follower. None. So here's as far as I can go on election. If you're a Christ follower, then you're elect. Period. That's about as far as I can go. And I don't think I can, I don't think I can um, make a truthfully a biblical claim with real clarity any more than that. And so I, I can only tell you my own story that that's about as far as I can, I can take it. I don't know how other than grace. Like crazy, amazing, unbelievable, inexplicable grace. It, it, is, it is grace. Because I know that on January 17, 2001 at 5.30 in the morning, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God reached his hand down and plucked me out of the pit of hell and saved me. I know that. Like I know that. I have no doubt. Now why did he do that? Because he loves me. Because he has grace on me. Did, did I do anything to earn it? Did I bring anything to the table? Like, did I deserve it? The only thing I brought to the table was the sin that made it necessary. That's all we bring to the table, y'all. What would Paul say to those questions I just asked? By no means. You did nothing to deserve it. You bring nothing to the table. Chosen by grace, elected by grace, saved by grace. Grace 
please hear this, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. There's not 70 things that you can have faith in, not 70 people you can have faith in. It is you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, period. That's the end of the story. Don't buy into any other lie. It's not Jesus plus a bunch of stuff. It's not. Now, in context, Paul's writing about Israel. So what does it have to do with us? What do we take away? What are, what are some principles maybe that come out of this text that we walk out of here with that we can hang our hat on, y'all, that we can say, man, that is a truth claim that Scripture makes. There may be multiple. I want to give you two, and then we'll wrap this up. Number one is this. You can trust God. You can trust God. You can trust the promises that he makes. You can trust that he is faithful. You can trust that he is faithful when you are slapped in the middle of being unfaithful. You can trust that, that he is faithful and he loves you when you are in the most unlovable of all places. You can trust that he is faithful when you are in the middle of your sin, in the pit, in the nasty. You can trust that he's faithful in that moment. Write down in your worship guide somewhere, number one, trust God. You don't have to write all that stuff I said. Trust God, number one. Number two is this. I think about, again, my own life. He ain't never done. Like, he ain't never done. He never quits working his plan. Y'all listen to the song. The worship team sang a little while ago about he's working a plan. He ain't never stopped working. He's not done with the promises that he made. He is faithful and true and righteous and holy and unchanging and infinite and good and great and just and sovereign and merciful and gracious. Y'all, he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he is relentless. For me, like that trait, his relentlessness. Y'all, you could run for 20 years and hide up in a tree. The God that saved me will chase you up the tree. And he will grab you. Why does he do that? Grace. Why does he chase us? And why is he so relentless? He wants to shower us in his grace. He is not done with you. Right next to trust God, write down, he's not done with me. He is not. If there is breath in your lungs, y'all, he is not done with you. If you are laying in a COVID ward on a ventilator, he is not done with you. He is not. I will not accept a theology that says anything other than that. He is not done. Look at the thief on the cross. Is the thief on the cross with Jesus or is he not? He's not done, y'all. Like I don't know any place in Scripture, and I don't know the Scripture like the back of my hands. I know the Bible a little bit, but I ain't, I don't. I'm not going to sit here and quote you the whole the whole Bible. But I don't know. I have never read anywhere in Scripture, nor have I seen anywhere in my own personal walk or talking with friends, or talking with family, or talking with people anywhere. I've never seen any evidence whatsoever that a man or a woman would kneel before the cross, knocking on salvation's door, repent, confess with their mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, and, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and God said, nah. I'll never, hey, that ain't what happens. So there's the tension, y'all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and God chooses. That tension that exists, it's the sign of spiritual maturity to be comfortable in the tension. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity to start fighting with folks over it. 
If you're a Christian, you're elect, period. And I would say anybody that says otherwise, they're just kind of deceiving themselves a little bit. If you're a Christian, you are part of the remnant. You are, you are elect. So let me tell you all today, if you have never said yes to that offer, it is there. It is. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it and turn towards the Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can confess quietly to yourself. You can scream it out if you want to. I'd probably jump off the stage if you do that. But you can, you can scream it or you can say it to yourself. But you confess that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Knock on that door of salvation and the Lord will not say no. He won't. He will say yes. And you don't need to say, well, you don't know what I did yesterday. He don't care, y'all. Knock on that door and ask for forgiveness, and he will save you. So, y'all, if you would, close your eyes, bow your heads, and let me pray. Lord, I know that there's people watching today. I know there may be people in this building today that they just did that, and you just saved them. They were born again. Your word calls them a new creation. Thank God for new creations. So, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. If that was you, we'll have somebody back in this corner uh, to pray with you if, you if you want that. I'd love to talk to you out here. Let us know on a little connection card in the seat back in front of you if, if that anything you need. But particularly if you made Jesus a leader and forgiver of your life today, let us know. I'm not going to tackle you in the parking lot, but I'll probably send you an email or call you or text you because I want to talk about it because everything's going to be different. So just let me know. I'll turn it back over to the worship team.